This past Monday, Queen Elizabeth's funeral was watched around the world by billions. They watched either in real time or by viewing smaller video clips of the many services honoring her memory. I woke up very early on Monday and Chuck had had a conversation with um, Mary Collins, uh, who is herself English, and Mary was telling Chuck, oh, the service is going to be broadcast live starting at six o'clock. And sure enough, I turned on the television at 6.15, and there was the Archbishop of Canterbury preaching a memorable and very short sermon at her funeral. It was a moving tribute. This is how he began. The pattern for many leaders is to be exalted in life and forgotten after death. The pattern for all who serve God, famous or obscure, respected or ignored, is that death is the door to glory. People of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. The example of Queen Elizabeth's life is a reminder that what we do with our life matters in life and in death. And what we do with our life has ultimate consequences. I went to the gospel for this morning, and what a contrast. In today's gospel, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus tells the story of a wealthy man who lived his life in contrast to those words from Archbishop of Canterbury describing Elizabeth. I want to thank Dave Mahan last week for opening up the scriptures. Uh, that's the role of the, of the uh, preacher, to open up the scriptures and invite us into a deeper relationship with God. And in his sermon, he talked about the, um, the shrewd or tricky uh, manager who actually banked on the goodness, the unconditional mercy and grace of the owner. It was a wonderful way to look at that paragraph, at that parable. And in his sermon, in just a very quiet way, Dave Mahan referenced a theologian, Kenneth Daly, whom I was not familiar with. And later in the afternoon, Chuck and I and Armando, one of our preachers, uh, was, um, were talking about the sermon that he had preached on these parables. And then Michelle came along and said, oh yes, Kenneth Bailey, um, he wrote a book, um, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. So that's one of the things I love about this church. Um, Ruth Lively, one of the long-term parishioners here has said, that this congregation is a learning church. 
and I'm learning all the time. And I just decided to order the book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and I love it. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Dave uh, and Armando for the opportunity to enjoy uh, this sermon. In his sermon, Dave addressed the use of one of the most valuable commodities we have, the precious gift of time. How are we spending our time? What are we investing in? And this, of course, was appropriately in the context of the newly named Ministry Sunday, uh, an invitational Sunday for the people of this parish to be involved in the many ministries of the congregation. Dave spoke not of the stewardship of our financial resources, but rather being good stewards of time and talent. What are we good at and how do we use it? In this sermon, we continue our theme of stewardship with yet another parable. It is a parable of incredible richness theologically. And it's not easily put into little boxes. We might wanna interpret it as Lazarus, poor in life, broken in life, wealthy in heaven, or the rich man punished for what he had. So those are neat little boxes. And by the way, this particular parable is not a favorite of preachers, but I loved it, thanks to Kenneth Bailey. In the parable, we are introduced to two men. One of them is a rich man, no name was given to him, just as in all of Jesus' parables. And the second man is a poor beggar named Lazarus. Now this is not Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead, brother of Mary and Martha. This is another Lazarus who at first glance seems a tragic and lost figure. The name Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew named Eleazar or Eleazar, meaning the one whom God helps. So Lazarus is the one whom God helps. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is another of the series of stories that Jesus told regarding the proper attitude toward wealth and its use. And Jesus had a lot to say about this in the scriptures. He knew both the blessings and the temptations of money. This theme is also addressed in our passage from 1 Timothy. So this passage is a comparison between the lives of two men, one seemingly blessed in this life, the other lived tragically. However, how they live affects all of eternity. Jesus starts out, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Short sentence, lots of meaning. In this introduction, we learn a lot about him. 
Purple is the sign of royalty and status, and that was his choice. It mattered how he presented himself to the world. He wanted to show people how important he was. And his fine linen, well, it turns out what he wore was purple on the outside to impress, and the linen was Egyptian cotton. So even his underwear was fancy. So we have a picture of a man who feasted every day sumptuously, a man who used his time and his wealth for himself, his own self-indulgence. He was a selfish man. The rich man in our parable lives in contrast to Lazarus who lay outside of the gates covered with sores and just wanting to satisfy his hunger from what fell from the rich man's table. Now at first glance, I'm a dog lover. Uh, we've had five. And when I read the parable and saw that even the dog licked his wounds, I thought, oh, that is just terrible. That poor man, even the dogs are harassing him. But it turns out, there's a little twist on this, that in fact, dogs have um, things in their saliva that are healing. And I have footnotes here if any of you'd like to see me about this after uh, the sermon. Um, and the dogs actually were merciful agents of healing, bringing comfort to Lazarus. So we see this poor man who we don't know a lot about, but in order to be at the gates of the rich man, he was carried there by the community every day and perhaps carried home every night. So Lazarus, it turns out, was a kind and gentle soul whom even the dogs responded to, even the little puppies and the people of the community cared for him as they could. So the parable continues, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. Lazarus, who was never invited to the rich man's feast, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, is now the one reclining at a feast in the place of honor next to Abraham, the father of faith. Meanwhile, the rich man experienced a very different kind of fate. He died and he was buried. So he probably had a great funeral. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony. Such a rich description. The rich man addresses Abraham, 
who is worthy of being addressed, but never Lazarus. And what does he want to do in death? He wants Lazarus to come and be his servant. He's not worth addressing, but he wants him to serve him. Kenneth Bailey expressed this so well when he wrote, the rich man's first demand is unbelievable. When Lazarus was in pain, he was ignored by the rich man. And now the rich man is in pain and something must be done about it immediately. So we see a lot about this man's character. There is no sign of remorse. There is no asking for forgiveness. There is only continued self-concern and self-importance. So how he lived his earthly life continues on in the afterlife. Lazarus, on the other hand, is comforted. And having lived a difficult life, he is no longer in pain and torment. The rich man, who is then unable to get Lazarus to come and serve him, asks Abraham if Lazarus could be sent to his brothers, who obviously were living just as he was, and he wanted to warn them about what they were doing. Once again, Lazarus is not a person. He is um, someone to, something to be used as a servant or a message boy. And Abraham responds and says, your brothers have the scriptures. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them pay attention to what they already have because they're not gonna believe Lazarus anyway. As you hear the words of this parable, as you hear this sermon, what is going through your mind? For me, I'm gonna share with you some of the takeaways. It's a shorter sermon because I hope that the words of the sermon will stay with us and we will ponder weighty, weighty matters. It's a sobering, sobering parable. It's a parable that invites us to discern how we live our life and what we are investing in, the precious, precious gifts that we've been given, the gift of time and talent that we heard about last week, the gift of our financial resources and our attention. So let me share with you some of my reflections. Number one, what we do with our life matters. It matters a lot. And the consequences of our choices follow us. When is it too late to turn around? We have many friends who are um, 
who are members of 12-step groups. And as part of their own metanoia, their own turning, they um, go through a time of fearless moral searching inventory, making amends to those whom they've hurt. And then the circle is completed as they then give back to others in the 12th step. When is it too late to turn around? I don't know the answer to this. As I was reflecting on this question, I thought of Keith DeRose, one of our resident philosophers, and his answer would be, it's a mystery. But the invitation is still there. We only know from this parable that it matters how we spend our life today and what we do with the gifts that God has given us. The time to call upon the Lord is now. The time to invest in things eternal is now. So that was my first big takeaway. And remember, I'm reflecting along with all of us about my life. Number two, things are not always as they seem. Those who are the closest to God are often overlooked and they are humble. They are ones whom God cares for in ways which surprise us. Lazarus, it turns out, is the hero of the story. This is the upside downside message, the upside down message of the gospel. God judges the heart and not the appearances. Lazarus is indeed the one whom God helps. Number three, wealth, whether it is a lot or a little, is not condemned in scripture. We see this in Timothy, first Timothy, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Rather, it is what we do with our possessions, which results in life and death consequences. And here we get into the whole realm of stewardship. What does it mean to be a steward of what we have? Chuck and I have been ordained a long time, and whenever we go into a parish, um, it seems like most of the churches we've served are um, churches with beautiful um, stone buildings and slate roofs and and we understand what it means to be a steward that this this gathering place this church was given to us to share all of us in this generation and our hope is that we will be a good steward of this gathering place and pass it on to others the same of the ministries of the parish the, the financial resources, we are stewards of all that we have. So what are we investing in now? That is the question. The rich man in the story used his resources for himself. And when he realized how misguided he was, it was too late. He wanted to warn his family to change how they lived, but he could not. Number four, mission. Here's another rich theological reflection. 
We often think of mission as something which happens far away, you know, in, in other countries. And Chuck and I have had uh, mission partnerships with some wonderful um, African brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that St. John's has had relationships with many um, who, are, who are from other countries, especially through the Overseas Mission Study Center. Mission is broad, and yes, it includes foreign missions, but it's also found close to home. Lazarus was right outside of the rich man's gate. Lazarus was his mission field. He just didn't recognize it. Mission, when we think of all the needs in the world, it can be overwhelming. How do we start giving what we have in, in ways that are oriented to outreach and mission? Here again, I turn to the wonderful memories, memories of members of this congregation to help us with this. When we get overwhelmed, I'm going to remind you of a sermon that John Hare preached on stewardship in 2019. And he used these words of, which is a description of, of how he knows where to invest time, talent, and treasure. The principle of providential proximity. I'm gonna say it again. The principle of providential proximity. It took me a really long time to trust myself to say it from the pulpit. What that means is, who is close to you? Often our mission field is closest to us. It's our family, our parents, our children, our friends, our neighborhood, our church, our community, our world. We've, we all have many mission fields. Ask God to show you what your mission field is. God places opportunity to give right in front of us. Next, we are each called to examine our life. And this examination continues throughout our life, especially in times of the transitions of life. We're not in Lent, we're not in Advent. Those are times we think of as self-reflection. This parable invites us to a time of self-reflection. One of the gifts of St. John's is that there are many people who are under the age of 40 here. And so, your years, most of your years, are ahead of you. Hearing a, an invitation like this is so important because you're looking ahead and you're asking questions about where do I want to invest my life? Some of us are in the autumn or even the winter phase of our life and we're still asking ourselves that question. Where do we invest the gifts of God 
that we've been given. The precious gift of time, talents. And finally, meaning is created by our responses to what happens to us, not necessarily by our situations. Life is at times unfair. It is unjust, sometimes heartbreakingly so. And we see that in this parable, Lazarus in his brokenness, in his character, was the closest to God. And he was delivered. One of my favorite verses, I remind myself of this a lot. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. How that happens, I don't know. It's a mystery. We are not going to go through life as followers of Jesus without sorrow or disappointment or tragedy. The unique gift of talents, passions, and callings. There is only one of you who can invest those for kingdom purposes. This parable is not so much about material possessions. We as Christians have the riches of heaven, the gift of the Holy Spirit who is with us at all times, bringing us comfort and peace, helping us find direction and purpose. In fact, in another parable, Jesus says, if I can't trust you with material things, how can I trust you with the riches of heaven? Those are the true riches. If you are in the, the spring of your life, you've got a lot of time left. If you're in the autumn, less so. If you're in the winter, important for us to make that fearless moral searching inventory. This past week, just out of the blue, Chuck wakes up and he has a very active dream life. Sometimes we share dreams early on. And he said to me, Ellendale, I just had this realization. I think it's a word from God to me. I mean, this is like, you know, early in the morning. And uh, he said to me, here's what I want to do. For the rest of my life, I want to do as much as I can, for as many as I can, for as long as I live. And I said, wow, that's a really big mission statement. <laughs> a little overwhelming. I like to keep my goals a little more manageable. And so I discovered a saying years ago from Helen Kenner, Keller, uh, a quote from her, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do something that I can do. So you've got a couple of mission statements there. You can pick whichever one works. I want to close with an example of one of my role models. Um, I've spoken about my Aunt Tantine before. She was the one who taught me to pray when I was a child. Uh, Tantine 
Um, she worshiped in the same Episcopal church in Alexandria, Louisiana, her whole life. She served in the choir. She taught Sunday school. She was just one of those wonderful people who, who just had a word of healing for everybody. One of the great sorrows in her life was that she could not have children. And here is how we respond to life, such a good example. She loved children. And so she decided, um, her sister lived close by, that she would be a second mother to, to my grandmother's uh, children, my mother and her two brothers. And so they had two moms and we had two grandmothers on my mother's side and she was such a gift. And she used to have this saying, which it turns out a lot of people used to say um, back in the old days, whatever they are, I shall pass this way but once Therefore, any good that I can do or any kindness that I can show, let me do it now, for I shall not pass this way again. When I was a high school student, uh, she taught me to knit and tried to teach me to crochet, but I couldn't do it. And um, I discovered crewel work, which is where you take little yarns and you make designs out of it. And I found a crewel work a kit that had that exact saying and I gave it to her and she just cried and cried. She wept because I had heard her. I had heard the mission statement of her heart and I always wondered what happened to it. Um, she died in her 80s very peacefully. My grandmother died a few years later and when I was helping my family um, kind of clean out my grandmother's things Tucked under her bed was this very worn, tattered, cruel um, design that I had made so many years ago um, as a high school student. And I took it home and a friend of mine cleaned it up. I don't know how she did it. It was stained and mildewed and framed it. And I now have it in our home. So I've had examples around me of investing for king, kingdom purposes. When I was preparing for this sermon, the word that I heard was reset. It's an invitation to reset. And I'm gonna invite you for the rest of the service today, whether it's doing the prayers of the people or the confession or the Eucharist, to, to, to come before God and, and ask these words, how do I want to spend what you've given me, Lord, in my life? How do you want me to spend time, talent, treasure? What matters to you that matters to me? That's something that we can do throughout the service, very quietly, coming for communion. I surrender all, coming for communion. The other way we can do this is that you could ask somebody to pray with you, simply pray with you. Now, after communion, you might be sitting next to a friend and say, would you just pray with me as I rededicate my life to the Lord and ask God, what does he want to do with my life? 
for the years I have ahead. Or some of you might go up to someone and ask them to pray during communion. There are people who would love to pray with you. I'm gonna name some of the ones that came to my mind today. Brian Sullivan, who would love to have a healing ministry here at St. John's. Michelle Sig, Karen and Dave Mahan, Paul, Chuck, John. I mean, you know, I could, I could, I could list most of you. Find somebody that you know and is safe and just say, just pray with me for the, for the request I have before God today about how I'm going to invest, invest myself going forward. I ask that question. It's one of the reasons why I'm here at St. John's when I could be, I don't know, on a cruise ship? No, I wouldn't be. <laughs> Not. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the way in which it can be opened up to us. That the fruit of that word can be the fruit of a life well lived. I pray your blessing on every person in this congregation today and those who are online. Guide them by the power of your spirit. Amen.